Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. And today we are going to take on a hoary old chestnut <laughs> of, of Second World War, post-war scholarship. And a thing that I think is interestingly has entered the popular discourse. Because you hear this, you read this in newspaper articles as a sort of, as a kind of gotcha yep. about warfare. You yeah, know. but it's cod history, isn't it? Well, exactly. So... John, and you said, can we talk about this, please? You're you're ch- chomping at the bit to, to talk about this subject. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to hear John talk about yeah. it. We're talking about the, Slam Marshall. Slam Marshall, yeah. Slam Marshall. So, John, I think, you know, we should assume that no one has ever heard of Slam Marshall before. So so who is this guy? <laughs> What's it all about? Why is there a uh, um, a, a debate about it? And why do, why do um, newspapers still use it as cod history? Yeah, so um, it comes from, you know, as you said, uh, his nickname, Slam Marshall. His name was Samuel Lyman Atwood Marshall or SLA Marshall. Um, he was a like part journalist, part soldier, military commentator, uh, really writ large for the better part of about 40 years. But And he's a bit like Little Heart, isn't he, and these kind of types? He that, is, these exactly. Sort of, sort of journo soldiers sort of like to present themselves as great thinkers about modern combat and modern warfare, yeah. but actually don't really have the qualifications for the kind of the noise they're making. It's like overclaims, you know what I mean? Because I, I think – so I don't, I don't want anyone to come away from our, our episode today thinking that, that I believe Marshall was some sort of scoundrel or he was completely – off his rocker, he went too far in his claims. He, he was really a pioneer in some respects in terms of documenting combat history, uh, and yeah. especially from the, the, the average soldier's point of view, uh, yep. which hadn't been done throughout most of military history yeah. and mm. became more possible now, you know, by the modern era, especially by World War II. So Marshall had been a soldier at the tail end of World War I, uh, really hadn't seen any action or anything like that. He had gone back to a journalistic career uh, working for the Detroit News. And upon the outbreak, he was a he was a reserve officer. And upon the outbreak of World War Two, he becomes uh, one of the key figures in the Army's effort to document the operations and its combat history. The famous Green Book series and all that. Yeah, yeah. General Marshall, the chief of staff, felt it was very important to have that history done. And what that meant is you were going to need to circulate some level of combat historians around the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. In in Marshall's case, you know, he's one of the first people to really begin these techniques of interviewing the survivors of small unit actions in the Battle of Macon and uh, and later the Battle of Kwajalein. And, of course, more famously than in the European theater, especially the Airborne Drop, he writes that book, Night Drop. Okay, yeah. so he's a longtime author and, uh, and sort of reserve officer who's going to be in play all the way through the Vietnam War, um, in, in, inclusive of Korea, too. And he retires as a one-star brigadier general. And he has all this great cachet as somebody who's sort of been there, done that. And he writes a book, which is quite influential, called Men Against Fire, uh, which is mm. published, I think, in 1947. 
And it's supposedly based on his experiences interviewing soldiers in World War II. And in one of the chapters, he claims that in any typical uh, infantry unit, at most, maybe 25%, but probably more closer to 15%, ever really fired their rifles in combat. Yeah. So because of who he is, this is taken as a kind of article of faith. Like you guys said, it's just repeated journalistically and wherever it seems to be useful to make the point that a lot of human beings don't want to fight, um, yeah. which is which is a good point, yes. Yeah. But in this instance, it doesn't hold up to evidence when you really look at the combat in World War II. Uh, yeah, I think there's the also a side. nature about journalism, and, I, and this is going to be uh, this is a sweeping statement, but I kind of broadly <laughs> believe it to be true. <laughs> well, I do think it's I do think it's true. I, I, I think journalists and people that were reporting stuff, they're, they're kind of for the most part they're disruptors. You know, they're wanting to buck the trend. They're wanting to say something mm. that is contrary. They need headlines. They yeah. need headlines yeah. for their byline. You know, so so. Whenever there's a sort of opportunity to go against the grain, you know, we all are brave men, but actually they're all crap because they only fired, you know, only 15% of uh, their rifles. They leap on it and, and it gets repeated. And this is, this is where some of my beef has been with, with, um, with some of the narrative histories of, of, of World War II is, is that so many of those were written by people who were first and foremost journalists rather than academic historians and that meant they could tell a good story but they're always you know this is why you get this overemphasis of of anglophobia from americans and americophobia from the british and you know there's constantly kind of emphasizing the kind of the discord rather than talking about the huge accord that's going on between the two you know the two sides for example and i think this is an extension of this i think this is an extension of that it is you know and it, it really is that sense of journalists writing the first draft of history um mm. and you know and that's challenging uh so yeah. i think Journalists deserve a lot of credit for doing that, especially real war correspondents who are there risking their own lives. Um, that's an amazing thing to be a part of. And so yep. Marshall is part, you know, journalist, part soldier, thinks himself really is more of a soldier, though he makes a lot of his living throughout his life as a journalist. And like you said, Jim, he's trying to stir up attention. And, and, and you know, like some of his friends used to say of him, Slam never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And, and so <laughs> he was kind of contemptuous of, of sort of academic historical methods, even as he was pioneering some. That's what's ironic yeah. about the guy. Right. He's really very innovative. Um, and so he, but he cult, here's my issue with him in Men Against Fire and throughout much of his life. He's cultivating this idea that he did a sort of systematic, almost social scientific study of who fired their weapons and, and all that. And that, that's the, the impression he creates. When you ask for the evidence, though, it's like, oh, yeah, that, we don't have it. I was there. I interviewed 400 different uh, rifle companies in the course of the war. Then when you sort of sit down and say, well, now, wait a minute, how long did it take you? Usually about five days or so. That would have been, you know, X number of thousand days. Yeah. The war would have been over. Yeah. Um, yeah. How would you have really done that? Yeah. Uh, you know, so that when you get into the nuts and bolts of it and you actually look at the combat interviews, you see that really what he was doing was documenting uh, battles, operational, you know, in a, in a sort of narrative story. Um, and especially through the eyes of the, the average soldiers who were there, junior officers, uh, field grades and whatnot. He wasn't systematically gathering data about firing ratios. And there's nothing about that in his papers. There's nothing about it in the combat interviews. I'm sure you guys have seen uh, some of this material, the combat interviews, especially. It's you know, this unit went here, they encountered, this was their tactical problem. Here's how they dealt with it. Here's a lieutenant who made this decision and all that. It's not, so it's it's very misleading to, to try and make that claim 
supposedly based on evidence that just really isn't there. Um, so there's that side of it. Then there's the anecdotal side. Think about how many uh, people you guys have interviewed or how many firsthand accounts you've, you've uh, dealt with in the course of your careers. Um, how, many, how much footage you've seen from World War II. And think about how many people are firing their weapons in that kind of environment. I was naive enough when I was like, you know, 24 years old, first encountering this in, in grad school, like, wow, this is amazing. And I, I'd see the documentaries and I'd see all these this footage of the U.S. troops just firing their weapons. I'm like, I don't know how the combat cameramen seem to always get around the guys who are firing their weapons. How did that happen? You know, it shows how <laughs> dumb I was, <laughs> you know, until I finally really started to sort of walk through this and say, this doesn't make sense. When you're attacking 80 to 90% of the time, which you are in World War II, you've got this thing called fire and maneuver. Yeah. Yeah. How in the world are you going to gain any ground unless at least somebody's firing their weapons at a key time, much less defending a position, too? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anecdotally, it makes no sense, of course. And so his and his assertion is seventy five percent of men don't fire their weapons. At least but, he, he yeah. would say closer to eighty five percent. And and at times he made the claim ever, you know. So in other words, let's say we had a rifle company of one hundred eighty guys. He's saying that only thirty of us, whatever it would be, twenty five, thirty of us at most would ever fire our weapons during the time we're in combat together. Not just this battle today and another one tomorrow, whatever. And that's just you it, know, it, it's interesting though because there's this guy. Oh, what's his name, Al? Um, Lionel Wigram. Lionel Wigram. So Lionel Wigram is. You, you are it, taking the words right out of my mouth. You are. This is exactly. Well, we've obviously been doing this too long. We know each other too well, and we're now <laughs> we, we've now become close. You're like an old married couple. <laughs> I know. This is exactly what I was going to say next. So, so Jim, be my be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to. I don't want to eat your sandwiches. But no, 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 no. So, go, so, go so, so Lionel Wigram. Lionel Wigram is he, he's a. A very, a very good trainer, and he's one of the people who's one of the pioneering instructors at the battle schools, which were originally set up by General Alexander in 1941 or 42, whenever it is. And this is this idea that you, you know, these are conscripts that don't really want to be there, um, and so you've got to give them simple stuff, but you've got to you've got to make it realistic. You've got to fire with real, you know, train with real ammunition, all the rest of it. Anyway, come the, come the Sicily campaign, he's sent over as an observer, and I can't remember which infantry battalion he's attached to, but he's attached to an infantry battalion. And he observes them and watches them and, and, and at times, you know, takes command of troops and, and all the rest of it. And he then writes this paper subsequently. And he concludes that there's, in any platoon, there's only six people who are doing all the work. Every, everyone else is just, they're just following their sheep. They don't really want to be there. You know, they're keeping their heads down. They are firing occasionally, but but not really. It's 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 six men. And, and, and this leads to the kind of classification, you know, the, the, the ABCDs, which are the Ds are, are kind of hopeless, just can't do it, run away quiver and, and sort of piss themselves and all the rest of it just can't cope then you've got the category c's which is the vast majority of people who are just sort of getting their heads down will do it because they've got to but just want to get home just want to be led then you've got category a's who are kind of adrenaline junkies they're the people who sort of do special forces go and join the sas or whatever um and just absolutely love it and just can't get enough of it and what could be more fun than going around sort of killing people with weapons and sort of jumping out of aircraft 
And then you've got the Category Bs, who are a comparatively small number, and, and they're your, kind of your, your sergeants, your platoon sergeants, the backbone, the people who will go the extra mile, don't want to be there, but will just do that extra. And, and, and what, what Wigram says is the Category Bs that are doing all the hard work. They're, they're the guys that are kind of motivating people that are always first into battle. They're always going to get up out of the, you know, from the, from the slope behind and urge people on and all the rest of it. And they are doing 90% of the work. And that mm. kind of fits in with, with what Slam Marshall's saying, but, but it's not quite as specific. It chimes with it, although the vast majority of people who just want to get on with it, that doesn't preclude them firing their rifle. Right. No, that's the difference. That's right. As you say, John, there's no, fi- there's no fire manoeuvre without fire. Right. And you can't do fire manoeuvre if most of you aren't firing. It, it, and if I'm in the manoeuvre element, you're going to be really unpopular with me if you're not firing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I think about it, most of the firing is coming from Tommy guns and machine guns or oh, whatever it might be. Weapons and mortars, of course. You know, people are using rifles. There are still using rifles. I remember talking to Alex, um, Alex Bowlby, who wrote Recome- Recollections of, of Rifleman Bowlby. And which is a fine account of being in the second rifle brigade, which is a battalion, not a brigade. Um, and he's fighting through much of the Italian campaign. And I remember him saying to me, he's saying, I don't think I ever fired my rifle once. He hmm. said, but actually, I think I was a pretty good soldier. You know, I, I was constantly moving on. I, he never, he only saw Germans in the distance. You know, he, he never more than a kind of, you know, a few hundred yards away. The only Germans he saw up close were dead ones. Well, and you have to have a target to fire. I mean, you should. I think this is the problem is that I think Marshall, you know, and others have tapped into a truth in a way that people tend to be reluctant to fight. Uh, There's plenty of people in a unit who just want to keep their heads down and not take any chances and, you know, whatever. Um, Of course, there's a reluctance to kill and there is a trauma that comes from that. I mean, but to try and create this this statistic, you know, this kind of claim that in which you have no evidence I think is extraordinarily misleading. And it actually had really quite terrible consequences in the long yeah. term uh, because once Marshall's writings come out, the U.S. military establishment, especially the Army, uh, feels it has a real problem on its hands and it really now has to emphasize killing. Kill, kill, kill. What makes the grass grow? Blood, blood, blood. All that yeah. kind of training that you're going to have in the yeah, 50s yeah. and the 60s, yeah. which then enhances the whole body count idea and all that. And so Marshall then went to Korea and went to Vietnam, and then he revised his uh, ratio fire figures upwards of 50%, then to 60 And it was right. just invented out of whole cloth. People in the military must have kind of thought, hang on a minute, this just doesn't really make sense. I think some did, but it was this sort of undercurrent of, well, I mean, he's he's the sort of guy now and everybody's listening to him he sets himself up as the expert i mean what's very interesting what's interesting about this is a while ago we spoke to matthew ford who's a british uh uh, sociologist who's written an excellent book about rifle design and he is no fan of slam marshall he he thinks it's baloney yeah but he says Mm -hmm. that's not the point that the the point is 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 it's accepted as true armies digest it um, and the assault mm-hmm. rifle is a direct, but is a direct byproduct mm-hmm. of of. And then the argument about how big a round you have, and all those things that follow from switching to an automatic assault rifle, and that's. And he says that's all from Slam Marshall because the, uh, one of the things Marshall also says is no one's aiming their weapon either. Mm-hmm. Even when they're firing it, they're not aiming it. They're just, they're just fi- if they do fire it, they're not they're not looking. It's spray and pray. They're, they're not getting a bead on anyone. So there's no point having a, an accurate 
accurate to a thousand yards rifle anymore, which is after all the huge debate within the American military establishment about martial traditions to do with, you know, the frontiersman who can who can bead a thing a mile off and the and the actually. You know the, the martial argument, which is no one, no one's looking anyway. So you need a rifle that can just create beaten ground and all and all that stuff. And he says, yes, it's all trash. That there's no scholarship behind it at all. It's someone who's created a name for himself more than anything more than anything else. I think it's quite interesting that Marshall was a child actor. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> little glimpse into his personality. He's a performer on some level. Exact did did silent movies, you know, when he's a kid. But mm-hmm. Matt says the problem is, is that it's taken as true, and it and it completely, like you say, diverts the course of training and weapons technology, and the idea of what an infantryman is, and all yep. that, and all historical that sort of understanding. Stuff. Yeah, historical exactly. understanding. Exactly, and, uh, and that's yeah. I mean, there there are still people. You know, I respect good scholars who who yeah. believe this still. Yeah, uh, and and it, it really has no evidentiary basis. At all. Well, uh, but but it also led to a dangerous thing, didn't it? Because it, it, you know, then you got was it Martin van Creveld who did the book on on fighting yeah. power? I think it was where right. he's basically saying all the Germans are brilliant and all the Americans and British were rubbish. Exactly. It led. It yeah. fed that whole mania too, which we know. And, and that mania is still. You know, it's Max still will around. still say that. You know, we we love Max. He's great, but but mm-hmm. he will still say the Germans are better. Yeah, yeah, and I just I just don't think that holds up to the the, the evidence. We've talked about this. And uh, yeah, and and it's I think just think it's so unfortunate. So so another thing I did, you know, on the sort of evidence side of the equation, looking yeah. at Marshall's papers, looking at the combat interviews, you're not going to find any data. So I interviewed and many years ago John Westover, who was one of his key combat historians. Westover did a lot of the really heavy lifting, yeah, uh, in terms of uh, especially like uh, what became Eight Days in Bastogne, uh, Marshall's book there. Westover did a lot of the great interviews. Another guy named Joe Webb or two, uh, but especially mm. Westover. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it's just amazing stuff. He was um, a PhD from the University of Missouri, which I have to point out, you know, is a point of pride. He was a, he was a local mm. guy. Um, mm-hmm. And I asked him point blank because he was in on all these, most of these sessions with, with Marshall. Did you guys ask about uh, whether people fired their weapons? And he, <laughs> he said, said, no, of course not. He said that would have been a really kind of hostile and loaded question, like, do you beat your wife? It would have been very offensive to a lot of these combat soldiers who you were already trying to, you were kind of having to work hard to establish a rapport. Think of it. You're an officer coming into a unit of people you don't know. These are survivors. Most of them enlisted. They're infantrymen, so they hate the world anyway, um, and they're suspicious of you. Someone so asking dumb tough. questions. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you so know. General Gavin liked to tell a story, and, and this was his way of kind of pushing back in his own kind of polite, almost gentlemanly way uh, against Marshall. He liked to tell a story about how when Marshall came to the 82nd Airborne to, to do some of these interviews, um, you know, he had 101st patch on, and that didn't sit too well with a lot of people. And he goes in there and does, you know, does these interviews and all this. And when it's all over that, a lot of the soldiers sidled up to him and it said, sir, who was that, that guy? Was he from the inspector general's office? Who the hell was he? You know, like contemptuously. And, and, uh, (laughs) and and Gavin was like, yeah, that, that kind of told me a lot, you know, in terms of how he was perceived. Right. Uh, Which I also think is kind of unfortunate because I think Marshall has done some great work. I just think he's gone too far with some of these claims that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I admire him on, on some levels and others. I, I just think it's very unfortunate. 
Um, well, the after-action report has survived, hasn't it? It's the beginning of a methodology that armies find very valuable and still use, don't they? I mean, it, yeah. Well, and, so, and that I use myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with with Iraq war soldiers, yeah. um, it, you know, the group interview, which is yeah. great because it, it is great to have a group of people who fought together in one room because they know the reality. You know, so if you come up with some cock and bull story, someone else can call you out. It's a really good method. Uh, so he's a, so that's why I said I really admire Marshall on many levels. I just these these excesses and this tendency towards hyperbole and and I, he had a kind of a bullying side too in the sense of when he became a kind of institution and people would think about challenging him on this he would just push back and say well I've been there and I don't need all that you know <laughs> evidence I don't stuff need data, or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> well well so so on the subject of which John you sent us a, a zip file saying get your eyes on this of of evidence of basically ammunition expenditure. Um, uh, And if it's only 10% of people firing there, boy, they're busy. (laughs) Boy, are they ever. So here's the the thing. And this is just one unit in one sort of very kind of uh, low-level 13-day period. We just need to take a quick break. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. 
Page one I've got is the following number of weapons were employed by the 305th Infantry. So there's the 305th Infantry, the 77th Division on Guam in the summer of 1944. So that's what occurred to me over time. You know, again, I was talking about how, how dumb I was. It took a while for me to really kind of sort this out. And I, th- I thought eventually, well, wait a minute, if nobody was firing their weapons, wouldn't that have a logistical consequence? I mean, yeah. wouldn't the supply people be like, well, God, we got all these bullets on hand in our inventory and you know, nobody's using firing their bullets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is the 305th Infantry during 13 days of the Battle of Guam, okay? And this is what they actually did. This is what they actually did according to their records that, that I found at the National Archives. Yeah. Right. And, okay, this is just the, you know, like there's eight uh, 30-06 bullets that go into an M1 Garand clip. Yeah. 384,402 bullets expended. Um, in a 13-day 30, period of re- pretty low-level combat compared to a lot of other parts of the war. This is 77th on Guam. It's not like the battle's over, but it's not a terribly intense period at the end of July and into right. August. So there's 3,000 people in a regiment, but how many are really riflemen? Maybe one-third of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a big math person, but how, that's 384,000 just 30-06 bullets. <laughs> fired by a 1,000 to 1,500 guys who have an M1 Garand at most, right? How yep. many would how many would that be per person? Well, and how many would be per person if only a proportion of them? I mean, if know. it's 15% or even yeah, 25%, yeah. it's even more absurd then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, these boys, these boys <laughs> like, are really busy, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, boy, are they ever. I mean, I don't know how the weapon would hold up. Well, um, if, if it's a 1,000 people, then that's every single person firing, firing best part of 400 bullets. In that, yeah. in that, uh, that yeah. everyone. So, yeah. so if you're only doing fifteen percent, then then fifteen percent are all firing two and a half, you know, th- three thousand, aren't they? I've always thought, just anecdotally, maybe you could flip the number around. That maybe it's yeah. the majority firing. Maybe it's seventy to seventy-five percent. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. We'll never know. Yeah. But uh, but that number alone, to me, you got to step back and say, wow, because this is just a typical division, good yeah. quality unit. Um, you know, fighting in a fairly normal two weeks, a little under, and that's how many bullets they're expending just for the M1 Garand. It's not even talking about the carbine too. Yeah. Um, you know, and the BAR. There's a, there's a column here that says recommended unit of fire. I don't really understand what that means. That means how much you're recommended to have on hand, uh, is a typical basic load. A guy's carrying 45 rounds for the carbine and, and, uh, uh, roughly. So that's what... Fifteen, three, three clips for your carbine. Yeah, yeah, and so that so kind of the same heavy rates of fire for your carbine and for your BAR in the three hundred fifth infantry. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of bullets being expended. Then I also, you know, have part of the 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 little uh, zip file that I sent you. It's the other two units too, the other the three hundred six and the three hundred seven. So this isn't just the three hundred fifth. You're seeing enormous quantities of bullets. Uh, expended by them too. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. right there, logistically, you can see the whole ratio fire thing makes no sense. Yeah, none. Yes, two hundred thousand rounds of point three zero in eight round clips. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And you're right, you're right, Jim. I mean, the wear and if it were just fifteen percent of people or twenty twenty percent people firing your weapons, the wear and the wear and tear on the rifles would come up. Wouldn't It'd it? come apart. You'd see it in rifles being replaced, wouldn't you? There'd yep. be a function, or like you say, John, the, the, the logistic people were going. Why are we sending so much ammunition if it's not being used? 
What's the point? Because shipping is so exactly critical and managed really, really precisely, isn't it? Which is why, especially like for the 77th Division, you remember they're operating on Guam. So shipping is everything to these guys. And the Navy is going to get really kind of particular about this if they keep shipping bullets that are never expended. Yeah. So that's why these records tend to be so careful and minute. Because yeah. it, it informs your, your basic load, your cargo load, yeah. once you're shipping things. Not to mention, of yeah. course, your resupply once you're on the island. Yeah. And you need to know much, how much ammunition you are in its grand quantity because you don't want to run out. Exactly. <laughs> Especially the Americans, which firepowers everything. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. That's the other level that's just so absurd. The American way of doing things is firepowers everything. Well, then, yeah. if only 20% of people, surely you need an army five times bigger <laughs> to, to right. the, the required effect. Well, and if our philosophy is bullets, not bodies, and we're not firing bullets, why don't we have more bodies then? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, as, as one sort of grizzled uh, company commander who fought in the European theater said of Marshall, he said, did the SOB think we clubbed the Germans to death? And, and I really think that kind of gets to the nut of it, doesn't it? I mean, of course, you've got all this other firepower. We all understand that. Your quad fifties, your mortars, your artillery, and your, and your, you know, your 30 cal machine gun and, you're using the hell out of that, of course. But you also still need some level of a small arms fire, too. Mm-hmm. And and this is the evidence of it, just the 77th Division in one fairly innocuous well, time period. And I, I deliberately chose a time period in which they weren't in intense fighting. Imagine right. if it was yeah. Okinawa, if it's during the fighting there. Yeah, 174,000 rounds of forty-five caliber pistol. That, uh, too, that kind of surprised me, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's like, wow, really? And people are carrying 21 rounds of that, typically. Yeah. That's an awful lot of uh, pistol ammunition, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, and the pistol's usually the last resort weapon. So that, that that surprised me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and compared to the 50 cal, which is 42,000 rounds, this is the 305th infantry, which isn't as much as you'd think. And the emphasis here, and obviously, we, like you say, John, we know that we know that mortar fire and artillery fire is, you know, from, from casualty records, is the thing that uh, mortar fire in particular is the thing that, that, that people suffer from. Most of all, but there's a hell of a lot of small small arms fire being expended. It, 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 and if this is beaten ground, then this is beaten ground. You know, one way or another, you're engaging with the enemy here, aren't you? It's the, it's you the, are with, with small arms fire. Yeah, I mean, you're doing that classic infantry mission. You're closing yeah. with the enemy. Yeah, and what that means is you're probably going to fire some level of bullets. Yeah. Um, and and of course, we all know too, and this is a given, that there are times you don't want to fire your rifle in order to because you don't want to direct enemy fire to yourself. Yeah. You don't have smokeless powder. You don't want to clean your rifle. You're scared. I mean, we all understand that. Yeah. Yeah. But to add up to the number he claims is just mm-hmm. uh, sort of beyond the pale. So one of the reasons why I often why I wanted to do this today and, and why I bring it up a lot is because you still have this perception uh, that is repeated, I think, sometimes almost mindlessly. But you've all experienced that when some story you read in a, in a journalistic setting or some claim somewhere, someone wants to appear kind of savvy and in the know, like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, yeah. only 15 percent. And it was documented and all that. And, but they don't really know what the world they're talking about. Well, but um, this is that's this the is part also, that frosts me all these years. This is later. also an appeal, an appeal to an ideal world, isn't it? In a sense, philosophically, isn't it? That In an ideal world, people don't really want to kill each other. Whereas you could argue right. that, you know, one of the conclusions of the Second World War is that people do really want to kill each other and are entirely capable of it. Is the, Boy, is are the, they ever. Is, is the truth. To the tune of 65 million. 
Exactly. And the, yeah. the rosy idea of human nature is, you know, how could this possibly happen? It's, well, if you give 19-year-old rif- 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds rifles and you tell them to shoot at each other, there's every chance they will. Yes. And, I mean, the other, the other thing that's... Well, I, I remember, it reminds me, of, I remember being in Sicily and going um, to Ajira, and I was talking to a, the, the colonel, and, and he said, well, the one thing's for absolutely for sure is as long as there's 18 and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds, there's always going to be people wanting to fight. Hmm. Always. Yeah. yeah, it's true in a bar room, true on a battlefield. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me looking at this is now that everyone's got an automatic rifle, God knows how much ammunition they're chewing through. Oh, my God. I mean, I know, I know the M1, the Garand, is, a, is an automatic rifle, but it's, it, it's a single-shot single automatic. It's not, you know, it's not capable of – you can't – I mean, obviously, you're trained not to let off a whole clip in one go and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff with a modern automatic rifle, assault rifle. But just, I mean, the figures must be – you know, an equivalent situation must be five times this or something with a it with would a have to be. with an assault rifle, and there's your logistic problem immediately, absolutely you know, straight away. Which is why you want a smaller round because it's easier to ship, easier to carry more, mm-hmm. and then the le- and then you have a problem of lethality and you know blah 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 all these yeah, yeah. all these knock on knock on effects that um I, it, God it's so interesting this John these well, and, are- and also if you think about it at the time you're transitioning from the World War One era bolt action rifle now to your semi automatic M1 Garand yeah. which is a great yeah. advantage for you as a U.S. soldier and and by the way I didn't even include the the numbers from the Springfield yeah uh, which is still in play for the 77th yeah. Division and others yeah that's more bullets that they're expending <laughs> and that's somebody who is either a sniper. Or maybe likes this weapon or maybe as a leader or something. You know, I mean, you've got that too. So, yeah. you know, most of those numbers, I just focus on the M1 Garand, and that's not even the full scope of who's shooting hmm. with a personal, you know, uh, yeah. individual small arms weapon is yeah. the point. Um, not a crew served weapon, which we all understand that's a different animal in a way. I'm so. still really amazed that more people didn't question it at the time. You know, you've just come out of a Second World War. You've just won... Any quartermaster is going to know how much bullets have been mm-hmm. been spent. Any general is going to know. Any commander is going to know that this just doesn't ring true. Mm-hmm. You know why? Why isn't Marshall being called out? I get it that he's got this sort of slightly elevated status, but he is still only a journalist soldier. He is, but he's got the ear of many power brokers. And in he's the in army. first. Mm. He's in first with this. He's in first best dressed, isn't he? The idea is the idea is got his boots so. on. It, it, Very it much so. And yeah. because, of course, there's a priority at that point for, um, you know, documenting these uh, these small unit actions, which has yeah. not been easy. And yeah. having that end up in the green books and, you know, all of that business, too. But it's also a little bit disquieting looking back on it. It shows how mindsets can be shaped and how people a lot of times will just back down. Like you said, Jim, I mean, of course, there's all sorts of people who are skeptical from Gavin on down. Right. And yet they, they really, many of them just don't voice it or don't think about it or, or, you know, voice their concerns. I don't know. I mean, it also fits with the picture that the Second World War is occupying a new a new space culturally for people. And so they're finding new ways of approaching it and documenting it and thinking about it. I mean, the, the other, you know, the thing that's happening in Britain is that finally a study in lethality in weapons is going on. And no one's really ever done it before. Really mm. looked at what is it that kills people? Is it the weight of a projectile or the velocity of a projectile and therefore the force it delivers to a body that no one's ever really ever bothered with? And I think this fits into that category. And there's a, it's a sort of, it's also the kind of, um, it's that cultural idea that science, science has the answers. And if someone says they're scientist or, or scientific, you go, all oh, right, okay, you must be then. You know, he's, he's arrived at this, he's arrived at this by hard work and reasoning, hasn't he? And so people, 
or he says he has, so people believe it. I mean, right. He's, there's a war on you. I've got time time to check his working. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in Marshall's case, he really was a combat historian. Yeah. He really did do a lot of good, productive work. Um, it really was innovative. And he was a soldier. And, you know, yeah. so he's in these army circles, very much an insider right. yeah. for generations. Yeah. Uh, so it was so like like you said, Al, it's like, oh, well, he, he must know what yeah. he's talking about. I, th- I think so. I think there were some people who were skeptical or knew better, but also thought, yeah, and, and maybe you can relate to this. They also thought maybe there's something I don't know. You know, maybe yeah, yeah. my corner of the war was atypical or maybe because yeah. that have, I mean, have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you're like, does this person know more than I do or a lot yeah. less? <laughs> I, where am I here? You know, and it can be a little confusing sometimes. And, well, and well, I think well, that was going on too. I mean, there's also, I mean, there's how many armies in the world are going to go, you know what, we're, we're, we're ag- aggressive enough as it is. We don't really need to be. <laughs> I suppose so. I suppose Very so. few. We don't need to be more aggressive. It's fine. We've got this. Du- we've got this down. <laughs> yeah, no problem now, right? <laughs> no problem. Cool, right? Okay, our training. Our training's absolutely fine. And then someone comes in and says, "Actually, no. You for all the training you've done, then your men aren't still aren't ready to kill." You know, but Mon- Montgomery says the British soldier hasn't really got any. He's not a killer. He says that, and he's sort of saying it with a. It's a fact of life. He wishes it were otherwise. But that's the raw material he's got to deal with. And I think it's completely understandable that, I mean, I actually, you know, I could completely see why you might invest in this idea, especially if there's a Cold War coming and the Soviets have this reputation for pumping men in. You know, that's the other thing is who's your new opponent? Someone with an awful lot of people. So your soldier's mm-hmm. going to have to kill an awful lot more people if it comes to it. It's also, I think, in the air in the 50s and 60s, right? It is. And now you're regarding the Vietnamese as an enemy that they're, you know, there's a there's a racism around attitudes toward the Viet- Vietnamese mm-hmm. as well, isn't there? And the, there they're is. the sort of replacing Jap- Japanese super soldier, aren't they? In, on one level, it conforms to to the way Americans want to think of themselves, especially at mid 20th century, as we value life, and you know, we're reluctant to kill. We're not we're not really warlike. We're we're a country that doesn't really like war. We're we're it's un, unusual for us, and all that. Which actually, if you study American military history, is balderdash. Um, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. U.S. is a country made by war, progressed by war. Um, whether we like it or not, those are the those are the realities. Um, yeah, it's not interesting. And you had seen some of the most hellacious. Yes, because if you think about the ninety, if you think about from, from seventeen seventy six onwards, they're kind of <laughs> you know you have that one up to seventeen eighty three. Then you got War of eighteen twelve. You got all sorts of little spats going on on kind of borders and stuff. When, and with Native Americans, and then throughout the nineteenth century, you've got fight, you've got little wars. And so it's not that different from now in that sense, too. And and so, yes, it's just it's been a constant. Um, and, and but Americans, I think, had wanted to think of themselves as somehow more humane or because of a, having a democracy or whatever, which also, you know, I, I would argue was a a bit of an oversimplification when a significant proportion of our population was not really participating in that so-called democracy, uh, African-Americans. And, and there's another reason why World War II is so important because of, you know, the civil rights movement too. So, um, so yeah, I think that the, the ratio of fire sort of takes us in the, in the direction we like to see ourselves, whether Americans or others, of being humane, reluctant to kill. And certainly many people are. Uh, and, and one of the things that's quite interesting too, from a later viewpoint, is that in some respects, the most traumatic aspects of modern combat, at least for U.S. soldiers, has been that they had to kill 
not necessarily the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of self-preservation and fear that you would have had, but that remorse overkilling and, and, and that it's hard to kind of get over that because obviously any society has strictures on that too. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, all, I, all tough stuff. I, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. It really is. Cause, cause the numbers, the numbers are, are sort of yelling at us when you look when you look at the the, the, <laughs> the bullet the numbers. Well, when uh, you're looking at the, the three hundred eighty-four thousand four hundred two, these rounds expanded. Yeah, they're yeah. going they're over here. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're screaming at us. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. the the you know the the S four and G four are, are telling us the reality, aren't they? Yeah. And, I mean, the, the other thing is actually what it does. Is raises far more questions than it answers, doesn't it? Is the, is the yeah. truth. Well, and it, it leads to to a misinterpretation, I think, that mm. you have a, a standard U.S. infantry soldier who really doesn't want to fight, who isn't yeah. going to fight, who's very yeah. passive and is going to wait for all that other stuff to do the work for him. And that's yeah. what he's often criticized for, which I think is absurd, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, it's ridiculous. Let me guess. I mean, do you think if you had uh, a lot of artillery at your disposal, a lot of mortars, airstrikes, um, quad 50s and all that – do you think you'd use that in order to fulfill your mission and save your life? Or would you just maybe use your small arms weaponry and charge straight at the enemy just to fulfill his idea that you're some sort of super soldier? I mean, it's yeah. absurd, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, the Martin Van Creveld sort of interpretation, I think comes yeah. from this too. And I think it's misleading. Yeah. Um, you know, not that every U S infantry soldier is a super soldier or something, but I, I think he, he performs pretty well in a general sense. Yeah. And I think the fact that he is firing his weapon as a fire and maneuver element often yeah. is one indicator of that. That's all. Yeah. You know, and it's tough to, to gain ground and control it. And that takes firepower, whether we're talking about the bigger stuff or the smaller stuff. The other point is that, that if you're in some honeycomb bunker system on a Pacific atoll, or if you're in some town or some hill land or some bocage or some mountain in Italy and you're defending it and both of you are on, from a from a totalitarian state where if you don't do what you're told, you're going to be shot. You know, all you got to do is just stay there. It doesn't. You don't need to be particularly well trained to fire a gun, to fire a machine gun, or fire a fire a Tommy gun equivalent, or, or or even a rifle. You know, you just you know this whole idea that kind of Germans are better trained and better soldiers, man for man, and all this kind of stuff. I just I just don't buy any of that. At I don't all. either. I don't either. It's almost Hitlerian in the sense that that's exactly what Hitler thought and why he'd win the war. And it was yeah. proven untrue, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it was proven demonstrably and, and, you know, people, untrue. People always, I mean, the, 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 you know, one of the things I was kind of discovered when I was doing my work on Normandy was that everyone's incredibly impressed by Kampfgruber, you know. Just amazingly, the Germans just sort of, you know, organize themselves into a battle group just like that with a click of a finger. Well, it's pretty easy when you haven't got very much. You know, the, 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 the problems are, are when you're trying to coordinate that with offshore naval guns, artillery, air power, then it's, a, you know, you can't just click your fingers and make it happen. But when you've got, you know, you've got a, um, a totalitarian organization, militaristic organization, you've got a commander and he goes, right, you're coming with me, you're coming with me, you're coming with me, be ready in half an hour. It's like, yeah, all. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's really of straightforward course. because you haven't got very much. And, and a camp grouper is, is fundamentally a sign of your, your inherent weakness rather than your inherent strength. And just because you've got the tactical flexibility to create a camp group, it doesn't, or battle group, doesn't mean you're super well trained or your tactical flexibility is, is a war winner because self-evidently it isn't. And, and really what wasn't. you need is huge material might as well as also, numbers. And- you're good at that because you've had, that's what you keep having to do. 
that their organizational structure doesn't hold up. You know what? I was, I was, I've been reading Douglas Porch's book about um, France, you know, 39-42 defeat division. Fantastic big picture thing. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he tosses Slam Marshall's conclusions. And I'm like, no! Oh, no! It's like you were doing book. so well. Exactly. Why you now that, exactly. Now the whole book is like, oh, That's how no. it happens. It yeah. creeps up yeah. in, in these, usually because it's not really the specialization for whomever's writing. No, okay, because a lot of these big strategic overview historians actually don't know anything about warfare. I mean, I, I would slightly kind of say that about, about Richard Evans. You know, he's a brilliant scholar of, of, of Nazi Germany, but he doesn't know, he doesn't understand combat and fighting and logistics and stuff at all. Yeah, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And it, yeah, you know when you're writing, you know when you're straying into something that you're like, eh, this isn't really my wheelhouse. And, it, <laughs> yes. you know, and it's almost like you have to catch yourself because yep. you, you'll be starting to write something based on something you've always thought or heard. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, because um, mm. you don't know it is inherently. And maybe that's what you're talking about, especially with Evans and in many others. We all have those issues. Of course. Um, and it, it's, it can be hard to step back. And I think the Slam Marshall thing, the, the ratio fire, is just the classic example. Um, and that's why it keeps creeping up. Yeah. I mean, and, and but again, so I'm so ambivalent, you know, because I think Marshall was remarkable on so many levels. And I greatly yeah. admire so many aspects of him. But this side of him, oh, wow, it frustrates the heck out of me. It's just, it's just such a shame. <laughs> well, thanks, thank, thank, uh, thank you so much, uh, John, for for that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed that chat. We'll we'll see you all again very soon on We Have Ways USA. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya.